Chapter 19 The Grace of God God of all grace, whose thoughts towards us are ever thoughts of peace and not of evil, give us hearts to believe that we are accepted in the Beloved and give us minds to admire that perfection of moral wisdom which found a way to preserve the integrity of heaven and yet receive us there. We are astonished and marvel that one so holy and dread should invite us into thy banqueting house and cause love to be the banner over us. We cannot express the gratitude we feel, but look thou on our hearts and read it there. Amen. In God, mercy and grace are one. But as they reach us, they are seen as two, related but not identical. As mercy is God's goodness confronting human misery and guilt, so grace is his goodness directed toward human debt and demerit. It is by his grace that God imputes merit where none previously existed and declares no debt to be where one had been before. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature and appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, spare the guilty, welcome the outcast and bring into favour those who were before under just disapprobation. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and to make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We benefit eternally by God's being just what he is. Because he is what he is, he lifts up our heads out of the prison house, changes our prison garments for royal robes, and makes us to eat bread continually before him all the days of our lives. Grace takes its rise far back in the heart of God, in the awful and incomprehensible abyss of his holy being, But the channel through which it flows out to men is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. The Apostle Paul, who beyond all others is the exponent of grace and redemption, never dissociates God's grace from God's crucified Son. Always in his teachings, the two were found together, organically one and inseparable. A full and fair summation of Paul's teaching on this subject is found in his epistle to the Ephesians having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. John also, in the gospel that bears his name, identifies Christ as the medium through which grace reaches mankind. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But right here it is easy to miss the path and go far astray from the truth, and some have done this. They have compelled this verse to stand by itself, unrelated to other scriptures, bearing on the doctrine of grace, and have made it to teach that Moses knew only law and Christ knows only grace. So the Old Testament is made to look like a book of law and the New Testament a book of grace. The truth is quite otherwise. 
The law was given to men through Moses, but it did not originate with Moses. It had existed in the heart of God from before the foundation of the world. On Mount Sinai, it became the legal code for the nation of Israel, but the moral principles it embodies are eternal. There never was a time when the law did not represent the will of God for mankind, nor a time when the violation of it did not bring its own penalty. Though God was patient and sometimes winked at wrongdoing because of the ignorance of the people, Paul's close-knit arguments in the third and fifth chapters of his epistle to the Romans make this very clear. The spring of Christian morality is the love of Christ, not the law of Moses. Nevertheless, there has been no abrogation of the principles of morality contained in the law. No privileged class exists, exempt from that righteousness which the law enjoins. The Old Testament is indeed a book of law, but not of law only. Before the great flood, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And after the law was given, God said to Moses, Thou hast found grace in my sight. And how could it be otherwise? God will always be himself, and grace is an attribute of his holy being. He can no more hide his grace than the sun can hide its brightness. Men may flee from the sunlight to dark and musty caves of the earth, but they cannot put out the sun. So men may in any dispensation despise the grace of God, but they cannot extinguish it. Had the Old Testament times been times of stern, unbending law alone, the whole complexion of the earth would have been vastly less cheerful than we find it to be in the ancient writings. There could have been no Abraham, friend of God, no David, man after God's own heart, no Samuel, no Isaiah, no Daniel. The 11th chapter of Hebrews, that Westminster Abbey of the spiritually great of the Old Testament, would stand dark and tenantless. Grace made sainthood possible in the Old Testament, just as it does today. No one was ever saved other than by grace, from Abel to the present moment. Since mankind was banished from the Eastwood Garden, none has ever returned to the divine favour except through the sheer goodness of God. And wherever grace found any man, it was always by Jesus Christ. Grace indeed came by Jesus Christ, but it did not wait for his birth in the manger or his death on the cross before it became operative. Christ is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The first man in human history to be reinstated in the fellowship of God came through faith in Christ. In olden times, men looked forward to Christ's redeeming work. In later times, they gazed back upon it, but always they came and they come by grace through faith. We must keep in mind also that the grace of God is infinite and eternal and it has no beginning, so it can have no end. And being an attribute of God, it is as boundless as infinitude. Instead of straining to comprehend this as a theological truth, it would be better and simpler to compare God's grace with our need. We can never know the enormity of our sin, neither is it necessary that we should. What we can know is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. To abound in sin, that is the worst and the most we could 
or can do. The word abound defines the limit of our finite abilities. And although we feel our iniquities rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It is so large, so high, it weighs only this certain amount and no more. But who shall define the limitless grace of God? It's much more, plunges our thoughts into infinitude and confounds them there. All thanks be to God for grace abounding. We who feel ourselves alienated from the fellowship of God can now raise our discouraged heads and look up. Through the virtues of Christ's atoning death, the cause of our banishment has been removed. We may return as the prodigal returned and be welcome. As we approach the garden, our home before the fall, the flaming sword is withdrawn. The keepers of the tree of life stand aside when they see a son of grace approaching. Return, O wanderer, now return and seek thy father's face. Those new desires which in thee burn were kindled by his grace. Return, O wanderer, now return and wipe the falling tear. Thy father calls, no longer mourn, tis love invites thee near. William Benko Collier Chapter 20 The Love of God Our Father which art in heaven, we thy children are often troubled in mind, hearing within us at once the affirmations of faith and the accusations of conscience. We are sure that there is in us nothing that could attract the love of one as holy and as just as thou art. Yet thou hast declared thine unchanging love for us in Christ Jesus. If nothing in us can win thy love, nothing in the universe can prevent thee from loving us. Thy love is uncaused and undeserved. Thou art thyself the reason for the love wherewith we are loved. Help us to believe the intensity, the eternity of the love that has found us. Then love will cast out fear and our troubled hearts will be at peace, trusting not in what we are, but in what thou hast declared thyself to be. Amen. The Apostle John, by the Spirit, wrote, God is love. And some have taken his words to be a definitive statement concerning the essential nature of God. This is a great error. John was by those words stating a fact, but he was not offering a definition. Equating love with God is a major mistake, which has produced much unsound religious philosophy and has brought forth a spate of vaporous poetry completely out of accord with the Holy Scriptures and altogether of another climate from that of historic Christianity. Had the Apostle declared that love is what God is, we would be forced to infer that God is what love is. If literally God is love, then literally love is God. And we are in all duty bound to worship love as the only God there is. If love is equal to God, then God is only equal to love, and God and love are identical. Thus we destroy the concept of personality in God and deny outright all his attributes save one. And that one we substitute for God. 
The God we have left is not the God of Israel. He is not the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is not the God of the prophets and the apostles. He is not the God of the saints and reformers and martyrs, nor yet the God of the theologians and hymnists of the church. For our soul's sake, we must learn to understand the scriptures. We must escape the slavery of words and give loyal adherence to meanings instead. Words should express ideas, not originate them. We say that God is love. We say that God is light. We say that Christ is truth. And we mean the words to be understood in much the same way that words are understood when we say of a man, he is kindness itself. By so saying, we are not stating that kindness and the man are identical, and no one understands our words in that sense. The words God is love mean that love is an essential attribute of God. Love is something true of God, but it is not God. It expresses the way God is in his unitary being, as do the words holiness, justice, faithfulness and truth. Because God is immutable, he always acts like himself, and because he is a unity, he never suspends one of his attributes in order to exercise another. From God's other known attributes, we may learn much about his love. We can know, for instance, that because God is self-existent, his love had no beginning. Because he is eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he's holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. Yet, if we would know God and for others' sake tell what we know, we must try to speak of his love. All Christians have tried, but none has ever done it very well. I can no more do justice to that awesome and wonder-filled theme than a child can grasp a star. Still, by reaching toward the star, the child may call attention to it and even indicate the direction one must look to see it. So, as I stretch my heart toward the high, shining love of God, someone who has not before known about it may be encouraged to look up and have hope. We do not know, and we may never know, what love is, but we can know how it manifests itself. And that is enough for us here. First, we see it showing itself as goodwill. Love wills the good of all and never wills harm or evil to any. This explains the words of the Apostle John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out all fear. Fear is the painful emotion that arises at the thought that we may be harmed or made to suffer. This fear persists while we are subject to the will of someone who does not desire our well-being. The moment we come under the protection of one of goodwill, fear is cast out. A child lost in a crowded store is full of fear because it sees the strangers around it as enemies. In its mother's arms, a moment later, all the terror subsides. The known goodwill of, an, of the mother casts out fear. The world is full of enemies, and as long as we are subject to the possibility of harm from these enemies, fear is inevitable. 
The effort to conquer fear without removing the causes is altogether futile. The heart is wiser than the apostles of tranquility. As long as we are in the hands of chance, as long as we look for hope to the law of averages, as long as we must trust for survival to our ability to outthink or outmaneuver the enemy, we have every good reason to be afraid, and fear hath torment. To know that love is of God and to enter into the secret place leaning upon the arm of the beloved, this and only this can cast out fear. Let a man become convinced that nothing can calm him and instantly from him all fear goes out of the universe. The nervous reflex, the natural revulsion to physical pain may be felt sometimes, but the deep torment of fear is gone forever. God is love and God is sovereign. His love disposes him to desire our everlasting welfare and his sovereignty enables him to secure it. Nothing can hurt a good man. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Martin Luther. God's love tells us that he is friendly and his word assures us that he is our friend and wants us to be his friends. No man with a trace of humility would first think that he is a friend of God, but the idea did not originate with men. Abraham would never have said, I am God's friend, but God himself said that Abraham was his friend. The disciples might well have hesitated to claim friendship with Christ, but Christ said to them, Ye are my friends. Modesty may demur at such a rash thought, but audacious faith dares to believe the word and claim friendship with God. We do God more honour by believing what he has said about himself and having the courage to come boldly to the throne of grace than by hiding in self-conscious humility among the trees of the garden. Love is also an emotional identification. It considers nothing its own but gives all freely to the objects of its affection. We see this constantly in our world of men and women. A young mother, thin and tired, nurses at her breast a plump and healthy baby, and far from complaining, the mother gazes down at her child with eyes shining with happiness and pride. Acts of self-sacrifice are common to love. Christ said of himself, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It is a strange and beautiful eccentricity of the free God that he has allowed his heart to be so emotionally identified with man. Self-sufficient as he is, he wants our love and will not be satisfied till he gets it. Free as he is, he has let his heart be bound to us forever. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For our soul is so specially loved of him that is highest, says Julian of Norwich, that it overpasseth the knowledge of all creatures. That is to say, there is no creature that is made that may know, know, that may know how much and how sweetly and how tenderly our Maker loveth us. And therefore we may with grace and with his help stand in spiritual beholding with everlasting marvel of this high, overpassing, inestimable love that Almighty God hath to us of his goodness. 
Another characteristic of love is that it takes pleasure in its object. God enjoys his creation. The Apostle John says frankly that God's purpose in creation was his own good pleasure. God is happy in his love for all that he has made. We cannot miss the feeling of pleasure in God's delighted references to his handiwork. Psalm 104 is a divinely inspired nature poem, almost rhapsodic in its happiness, and the delight of God is felt throughout it. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. The Lord takes peculiar pleasure in his saints. Many think of God as far removed, gloomy and mightily displeased with everything, gazing down in a mood of fixed apathy upon a world in which he has long ago lost interest. But this is to think erroneously. True, God hates sin and can never look with pleasure upon iniquity. But when men seek to do God's will, he responds in genuine affection. Christ in his atonement has removed the bar to the divine fellowship. Now in Christ, all believing souls are objects of God's delight. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. According to the book of Job, God's work of creation was done to musical accompaniment. Where wast thou, God asks, when I laid the foundations of the earth? when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. John Dryden carried the idea a bit further than this, but not perhaps too far to be true. From a song for St. Silesia's Day, he says, From harmony, from heavenly harmony, the universal frame began, when nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay and could not heave her head. The tuneful voice was heard from high, Arise, ye more than dead. Then cold and hot and moist and dry, in order to their stations leap, and music's power obey. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. From harmony to harmony, through all the compass of the notes it ran, the diapason closing full in man. Music is both an expression and a source of pleasure, and the pleasure that is purest and nearest to God is the pleasure of love. Hell is a place of no pleasure because there is no love there. Heaven is full of music because it is the place where the pleasures of holy love abound. Earth is the place where the pleasures of love are mixed with pain. For sin is here, and hate, and ill will. In such a world as ours, love must sometimes suffer, as Christ suffered in giving himself for his own. But we have the certain promise that the causes of sorrow will finally be abolished and the new race enjoy forever a world of selfless, perfect love. It is of the nature of love that it cannot lie quiescent. It is active, creative and benign. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, So it must be where love is. Love must ever give to its own, whatever the cost. The apostles rebuked the young churches sharply because a few of their members had forgotten this and had allowed their love to spend itself in personal enjoyment while their brethren were in need. 
But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So wrote that John who has been known to the centuries as the Beloved. The love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it is a personal, intimate thing too. God does not love populations, he loves people. He loves not masses, but men. He loves us all with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end. In Christian experience, there is a highly satisfying love content that distinguishes it from all other religions and elevates it to heights far beyond even the purest and noblest philosophy. This love content is more than a thing. It is God himself in the midst of his church singing over his people. True Christian joy is the heart's harmonious response to the Lord's song of love. Thou hidden love of God, whose height, whose depth unfathomed no man knows, I see from far thy beauteous light, in the I sigh for thy repose, my heart is pained, nor can it be, at rest till it finds rest in thee. Gerhard Terstegen <laughs>